Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, you remember those three episodes that we did on maps a while back? Oh, yes. Yeah. It was pretty interesting stuff. We talked about the, the way maps form our view of reality, how uh, maps exist not only on paper but in our minds. We talked about the some of the history of cartography, some of the, uh, the problems entailed uh, within... Right, and just exploration in general, how map making was this way to, you know, make a concrete idea of the abstract notions of the world around us. But one area that we didn't really get into that we're going to explore today is the the world of monstrosity, particularly the world of sea monsters. Because if you, you look back on old enough maps, you inevitably encounter fantastic things. You, you of course, encounter fantastic landforms mm-hmm. that, that deviate to varying degrees uh, from what we know or believe to be the shape of our continents. And then if you go out in the water, you see these strange creatures that don't match up particularly well uh, with anything that actually exists. And yet, like, these creatures that are represented on these maps, they are really powerful symbols. And we just talked about the power of symbols mm-hmm. in a previous episode. So they're stand-ins uh, both for dangers real and imagined. Yeah. And uh, as, as it turns out, the whole, the whole area of sea monsters is a largely understudied topic, uh, particularly when we're talking about sea monsters on maps. Uh, I recently attended a lecture by author uh, Shet Van Duzer, who uh, has put together a fabulous book called Sea Monsters on Medieval and Renaissance Maps, and uh, he thoroughly explored this topic. True, and uh, I wanted to read a little bit from Ben Shattuck's article from Salon. He talks about why uh, the oceans provide such a rich grounds for imagination. He says there's something about the ocean that keeps on giving to cryptozoology, mostly because it's a great dark room whose door only opens when animals rise to breathe or eat or sun themselves or when they flash through a cone of light shot from a deep water submersible. There's a bed of sunlight caught in the first 10 feet or so of water and then total and huge blackness. Still, though, the unsettling sea generates a productive fear to stoke our imaginations. Ah, that Ben Shattuck. He's good. He's also, of course, the guy who wrote that uh, excellent article about uh, being swallowed alive by a whale. That's right. Yeah. So we're talking about monsters, which uh, we've touched on monsters before. I frequently blog about monsters. And as I, I like to point out, the word monstrosity. Uh, originates from the Latin uh, monstrari, which means to show or illustrate a point. And in this, as uh, Van Duzer points out, it falls in line with uh, St. Augustine's view uh, of a monster as something that's part of God's plan, an adornment of the universe that can also teach us about the dangers of sin. But then there are other medieval commentators that defined a monster as a thing against nature. So we have to sort of clarify, what are we talking about when we talk about a monster? Because on one hand, a monster is, uh, you know, a fantastic creature that is against the natural order and mm-hmm. doesn't actually exist in re- reality. But then we have things like river monsters, the Animal Planet show, where these are actually real-world animals, but we refer to them as monsters because they are on some level monstrous. Yeah, I mean, they defy our expectations, right? Because we have uh, knowledge of our land animals, we have knowledge of ourselves, uh, but when we see these creatures that come from the depths... And they are so odd and like us, but not like us, well, they become abominations. Yeah. 
the popular theory in the medieval ages and on up into the 16th century uh, was uh, this idea that anything that exists on land, mm-hmm. there's a version of it that exists in the water. And this goes back to Pliny the Elder's statements in natural history. Uh, so the idea here is that you have a stag that lives on the land. Well, then there's a sea stag somewhere. There's a lion lives on the land. Well, there's a sea lion. There are men, there are mermen. And literally... Uh, it, it really gets ridiculous when you start looking at the sheer number because you, you, you may think, oh, he's just making some of these up. But just to, to look in the index of uh, Van Duzer's book, there's reference to a sea bear, a sea bishop, a sea bull, a sea chicken, a sea cow, a sea dog, a sea dragon, a sea elephant, sea frogs, goats, hares, horses, lions, monks, panthers, pigs, pig dogs, pig lions, rabbits, rams, roosters, serpents, stags, tigers, unicorns, and wolves. Uh, and... Uh, you know, just so, so you have that idea, that existing sort of philosophic idea of how the world works, and you bring that with you into an actual observation and second and third hand accounts of what is actually going on in the ocean, and you can see where uh, various uh, uh, bits of false data emerge. Well, and, and just to confuse things a bit, you have some animals from mythology, like you have, uh, you've got unicorns, but then you've got narwhals, yeah. which actually exist. So what do you get, of course? You get uh, some sort of creature that is a unicorn, uh, fish-like creature flailing out there in the ocean. Exactly. Now, when we talk about these maps, we're talking about these old maps, particularly medieval maps, we're basically talking about two kinds of maps. Uh, first of all, there is the Mappa Mundi, a map of the world. And it, it, it's really cool. When you look at the simplest and oldest of these, you have what uh, we call a TO map. And I'll include a picture of one of these in the gallery that accompanies this episode. But a TO map, if you'll picture a, a big circle, mm-hmm. all right, that's the world, okay? Imagine a central landmass surrounded by a circular ocean. Now imagine a horizontal line running across it, cutting it in two. That line is the Aegean and Black Sea on the left, and the Nile and the Red Sea on the right. And then a dividing line down the center of that line, forming the stalk of the T, that's the Mediterranean Sea. So this is a vision of the world sort of on its side, where the center of it, the very center of the circle, is Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. because that's the center of the world, Western Christian tradition. And so the whole northern um, half of the circle is Asia. Then the lower left-hand quarter is Europe, and the lower right-hand quarter is Africa. Okay? So this is really a a map that is not used to navigate. It's rather a a map that's used to record our ideas about the world and how it's configured. Yeah, you know, we talked about, when we did our our map episodes, we talked about, say, something like the map of the tube system in London, about Mm -hmm. how how important it is uh, certainly to to get around London, but also to form an idea in the Londoner's mind of what their city looks like and what their city is. This was a map to make sense of the stories you were hearing about. All right, Jerusalem's so important. Where is it compared to me? Where where is where is Africa compared to me? Where how do I fit into the world and what is the shape of the world? And what's interesting about that is it's got that configuration, the T configuration, which is directly um, feeding into this idea that we we know we have many more neurons that are dedicated to up and down and right and left in terms of our visual visual field and not diagonal, which is this need to try to put everything into a neat little package. Yeah. So. That's your earliest world map, and they certainly evolve uh, from there up until you know modern times. As we learn more and more about the, the, the what the world looks like and and how we get from one place to another. So on these maps, on the TO maps, most of the real estate here is concerned with the land, uh, and you'll have some cities marked and some important uh, uh, bits of geography. Uh, but as in the 975 Girona Beatus map, uh, sea monsters do appear in the outer ocean—that mm-hmm. uh, you know, that outer, the outer edge of the circle, the the edge of the world. Um, 
in this particular map from 975, you'll find a marine chicken and perhaps Jonah being swallowed by a whale or having been swallowed by a whale. You see like this big fish and you see Jonah in the belly. Um, though most of the depictions of Jonah and, and the whale, it's either Jonah being spit up or mm-hmm. swallowed. Like they tend not to dwell on the whole uh, living inside the belly bit. So that's one type of map. And then you also have uh, nautical charts because obviously people are sailing from one point to the other and they need a functional map to tell them how to do that. A TO map is not going to help you really navigate the world. Again, no. it's all, all about where you are in your head. Where you are actually on a ship at sea, you need a nautical map. And so uh, these were generally uh, these would generally have a, an outline of the land. Uh, and they were really only concerned with coastal cities and ports, and they would c- connect to each other by crisscrossing rum lines. Uh, so you could look at this, and you'd be like, all right, this is the line you need to follow if you need to get from this port to this port, mm-hmm. from this city to this city. Okay? And the more common variety of these maps was purely utilitarian. There were no frills, and there were certainly no sea monsters. But clients could and did opt for specialty add-ons, so you could pay extra for painted cities, for flags, and ultimately sea monsters. And, and these specialty maps, these were generally not the ones you would have on the ship. These would be the ones uh, you know you might give to a king or or, or you know have you know hanging in your your office or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, medieval maps just didn't have sea monsters depicted on them because what I mean, essentially, why? Because that's going to cost you more money, right? Right, and it was much more pragmatic at that time, like as you say, from going from point A to point B. But then you see later in the 15th century, as you say, they became a thing. In fact, uh, you mentioned kings. There was a, a chart maker by the name of Francis Beccari in 1400 who commissioned four really extraordinarily resplendent maps to give to four European kings in exchange for the right to trade in their countries. So mm-hmm. that's how valuable the, these pieces of paper became because, again, it, it represented exploration and also, as as well as people could at that time, a compendium of beasts. You yeah. know, of, it, it was sort of like a learned man's way of trying to learn about the world via the armchair. Yeah, it becomes a, kind of a, a zoological text as well. Now, uh, one thing I really like the idea of the, the sea monsters as an add-on. Uh, like, imagine, yeah. wait, like we don't really draw maps for one another anymore. But can you imagine, like, you know, you're asking a friend how to get to somewhere, and you're like, can you draw me a map? Oh, and, and make sure to put a sea monster on there. I want to have some monsters on that map. Or imagine if, when you use Google Maps, you could, in the same way that you have the options to click, uh, click on the button and have traffic represented, click on the button and have satellite information represented. Mm-hmm. Why is there no monster button? So I can see where <laughs> sea monsters and land monsters might potentially uh, be represented. There should be a monster overlay, for sure. Um, but let's talk about some of these, some more of these reasons for monsters being depicted. Um, one of the things that I think is really interesting, as we've already touched on, is that you know the truth is stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. So you have people who have been out in the oceans fishing for centuries. And they talk about what they have seen. Uh, perhaps they, well, I don't know if they'd see it at the certain depths that it exists, but vampire squid are yeah. an amazing, that's an amazing creature to behold. Sea snakes, mm-hmm. that seems insane. Yeah. And yet they are in the ocean. If you've ever seen a bunch of sea snakes congregating on an ocean floor and floating there like shafts of wheat, just passively feeding on, on whatever passes by, it is an amazing, incredible image and you could not believe it. So it stands to reason that if you have this collective of uh, ocean life, mm-hmm. that of course these 
these beasts would emerge from from all this sort of mythology. Yeah, and as we've as, as still happens today, when you encounter um, you know you encounter a whale in the ocean, it's pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You encounter a half rotten whale or any kind of <laughs> partially decayed bit of sea life, you're liable to. Uh, to interpret the original form in a different light, mm-hmm. um, we were, you know, even, like I say, even to this day, you'll find uh, pictures of some sort of weird thing washed up on a beach, and people are like, "Oh my goodness, this looks like nothing on Earth." Clearly, it's a sea monster. No, it's just a whale that is uh, grosser and a little uh, decayed. Uh, you're seeing more of its uh, skeleton and less of its uh, flesh, and therefore, it looks like a sleeker, different creature. That's true, and even now things are getting reclassified, right? Because every yeah. once in a while, we find the bones of something and say, "Oh, we think that this is." A new something, and they're like, no, no, this is actually a brachiosaurus. Yeah. Now, um, now again, as we, we mentioned, sea monsters, uh, a lot of them are going to originate in myth and religious tradition. You have Jonah's whale. You have the primordial uh, leviathan. Uh, one of the stories that, that keeps uh, coming up again and again in Van Duzer's book is the idea of the whale or fish that's so enormous that a, a, that a ship lands at it. And then the sailors get off they, they, on what they think is land. They uh, they camp, they set a fire, and then when they set the fire, that disturbs the fish, and the fish descends back into the ocean, and they have to scramble to get back on the ship before they drown. Now, clearly, this never happened, um, or, or it's it's at least it's at least very difficult to imagine a scenario in which this could happen. But it becomes such a a, a tale, like it captures the imagination, mm-hmm. and so it comes up again and again on these maps. It's true. And, you know, their representation on the maps is not just a symbolic stand-in for, for man versus nature, but it's also a way to depict actual geographical points of interest or even dangerous straits on a map. So there is a there's actual pragmatic reason for them to be on there. But a lot of these cartographers, though, they, what they were trying to do is they were trying to utilize the best information of the time to create a map that it's either going to stand on its own or it's accompanying some other text. And so most of the time they'd never seen these creatures before, but they were laboring to create accurate depictions. Uh, in many cases, they continued existing motifs, such as the island fish, and uh, presumed factual depictions of actual life in the oceans. Uh, they're, uh, the hybrids that they ended up drawing, well, those were backed up uh, in the theory of this land-water duality that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, were able to uh, repeat the true aspects of their uh, depictions. Whales are big, spouts, uh, you know, they spout water, and sometimes they damage boats. Um, as well as the inaccuracies. Whales have two blowholes, uh, they have wolfish faces, and they attack boats. Yeah, it's cool because I, I think about these maps as sort of the graphic novel at the time. They're, yeah, again, sense, yeah. yeah, trying to record as much scientific information as thought scientific at that time and trying to explain the creatures. Um, but the problem is is that you, you don't get a lot of clear perception of, of these creatures that you see without context. Yeah, there a lot of times these are these are again people who are several times removed from any actual observation of the creature. Uh, you have uh, in the same way that uh, you know Berto Echo said that books speak to other books, and there's this endless com- conversation, particularly um, among uh, between older manuscripts, where this idea flows to this one and is picked up by this one. It's like that game we all play as a kid, where you whisper in a circle and what telephone. Yeah, telephone. It's like a game of telephone <laughs> uh, with with uh, with text and. And then with visual representations of the world. You're right. And at the end of that co- telephone conversation, you get the, the vaca marina, the, the, the sea cow, right? Yeah. Because everything gets so distorted. Um, I was thinking about the, the perception and context problem in terms of Ben Shattuck's article 
for Salon in which he was trying to pin down a 19th century account of a massive sea serpent. Ah. And uh, the fisherman had described it as 100 feet long with an interlocking barrel-like body and a serpent-like face. And he kind of kept scratching at this, saying, "What? I mean, these are like hardened fishermen. They're They're all like, you know... They've been out there, they're experienced, and yet there's so many of these fishermen who said, we saw something, and he wonders, what could it be? So he talks to um, someone who is an expert in leatherback turtles. Uh, her name is Kara Dodge, and she says that you know it's probably just that perception problem, because she says that even when trying to track leatherback turtles now, they have to train fishermen to look for the hump and not the fin. Hmm. And so now they're getting a ton more accounts of leatherback turtles as they try to pin their whereabouts. Um, But until you give people the context for it or the imagery, then it's hard to pin down. By the way, the the whole leatherback turtle thing, sea serpent, Uh turns out, Ben Shattuck thinks from his research, that it could have just been essentially a bunch of leatherback turtles that were bumped up against each other. Oh, okay. And yeah, and it makes the appearance of these humps of, uh, of serpents. Yeah, because you're saying if you look at videos of leatherbacks, there's kind of the slimy black uh, image that emerges mm. from just under the water. And then if you look at their faces, they're serpent-like and they have fangs. Huh. So if you saw that from a, a you know good distance away, you might think that it's this 100-foot sea serpent coming at you. Now, the other thing about that is that narrative might serve you well if you decide to make a map to dissuade other fishermen from coming to your country and fishing your waters. And that's where I think it's fascinating that a map from the 16th century could have an economic function built into it. Yeah, the map in question is um, Olus Magnus's uh, amazing uh, 1539 map, uh, the Carta Marina, which uh, I'll make sure to include this one in the gallery that goes with this uh, episode as well, because it's it's really the the granddaddy of these. I mean, it's a marvelous map from a number of different uh, perspectives. Uh, he he brings whimsy to his creations of the monsters. Mm-hmm. He brings uh, uh, an artistry. And uh, and just a sheer number of monsters on this map is incredible. It's just it's just the the world is just completely monster haunted and it's beautiful. But there is this theory that uh, that he used a lot of these monsters uh, to scare away foreign fishermen from Scandinavian waters. Right, because if you were to look at this map, you'd be like, "Ho ho ho!" Forget yeah. it. There's this dragon sea serpent thing at every turn, or this other. Uh, lobster slash octopus thing that might take me down. Yeah, and, and the, the full map included like a zoological um, sidebar that explained like what some of these creatures were supposed to be. And yeah, you look at it and there, there are just all sorts of fantastic um, whales and whale-like creatures spouting up. They're attacking ships. They're pulling ships down. They're uh, flooding them with their, uh, sp- with their, their spouted uh, water. It's marvelous. Well, one of my favorite ones on there is that lobster-looking like creature that's said to be an octopus, and it's depicted with eight legs, and it's holding a man in one of its claws. Yes. Um, and in scale, you can see that it's monstrous in, in comparison to this man. And according to its scientific information, it lives in underwater caves and can change its color to match its surrounding. Now, that's amazing, right? Because yeah. what we're hearing there is that there's some cephalopod information, right? Yeah, at the core of this, we have some some good information. Eight limbs can change its color. 
lives in the rocks underwater. Yeah, we're talking about that this perception of chromatophores, right? Yeah. Well, at the time, they weren't called chromatophores, but this idea that cephalopods can change their skin color mm-hmm. through pigment cells. So think about being on a ship at night and uh, gazing over the prow and seeing bioluminescent light then emanating from a squid, and that's from the bacteria that's being housed in the organ lights. And just what a sight that yeah. would be, that there's this monstrous creature below that has a beacon of light coming from it. Yeah, we we throw in the narrative of monstrous creatures in the ocean, and that makes the thing ginormous. And then if if then you have somebody attempting to create it uh, on a map, and you know how would you come up with the idea of the octopus if you had never seen one? You know, like clearly this uh, the artist had had some experience with crustaceans, and so that is the form that the artistic representation of the creature took. Yeah, it's it's amazing because you do you see yeah. the the good bits of science in there mixed in with fantastical. It's in a way it's kind of like uh, all of our depictions or a lot of our depictions of alien life. There's something humanoid or vaguely humanoid about them. You know that is the form that we understand as intelligent life. So that's the form we tend to um, to project in trying to understand. Uh, mythical or imagined creatures. And it's similar here. The form that they understood was the crustacean, so that's the one that was uh, projected. Are you saying that we just need to be retrained to look for humps instead of fins out there? Uh, no, I mean... I, I In the intergalactic space? I think it, it just comes down to, to the fact that you have data in your mind that you're using to understand the outer world, mm-hmm. and we're never going to have, have enough data to understand some of the mysteries out there. We're going to be able to sort of partially construct them. Which has implications for how we perceive our universe, right? Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to run through some more specific examples of, uh, of how we have interpreted real things as fantastic sea monsters and the sort of journey from pure myth to truth in uh, the walrus and in the whale. All right, we're back. And uh, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the walrus. Now, the walrus is a great example of a creature that uh, that does not exist worldwide. It's not something that you would have. It's not a form you would have common knowledge of. You know, like a fish. You know, fish vary a lot, but they're sort of a prototypical fish. And uh, and you can if, you know one culture knows what a fish is, another culture knows what a fish is. A walrus is a little more exotic. It's a little more uh, monstrous. So when we when we look to the various interpretations of the walrus on these maps, again, often uh, depicted by someone several times removed from actual observation of the thing itself, mm-hmm. you see uh, a curious evolution of form. Uh, and there's a, there's an excellent bit in Van Duzer's book where he lays out eight different images, and you get to see how it changes. Um, for instance, you look at uh, the 1516 Carta Marina by Martin Waldsemuller, and you'll see what looks like a deformed elephant. Then you look at a uh, 1522 copy of Ptolemy's Geography, and uh, this time uh, the same uh, artist, uh, Waldsemuller, depicts a, a straight-up elephant. Like the first time it was kind of a monstrous elephant, and then he's just like, oh, it's, it's an elephant. Like it has feet, it has the it tusk. Does. It's just a brown elephant that apparently lives in the water and is a walrus. Okay? Uh, fast forward to 1539-ish. Uh, our man, Oleg Magnus, uh, depicts something that looks more like a fishy alligator with tusks. It has kind of that wolfish face common to many sea monster depictions. And uh, this design pops up uh, in other cartographers' work as well. 
But then uh, we look at 1555, 1558, 1595, and we see depictions of the walrus continue to grow more and more accurate. A rounder head, flippers instead of feet, tusks like a walrus instead of uh, an elephant, and they're going to take on a more appropriate color. So in this, we see what begins as just a, a you know an attempt to understand an exotic form mm-hmm. by using what you knew. Mm-hmm. You knew what an elephant looked like from existing, uh, you know, well maintained and, uh, and and well backed up illustrations, and so you applied that form to imagining this tusked, fat creature that lives in, in Arctic waters. You know, the weird thing about that is um, when you consider extreme mammals that have gone extinct, and you turn back the clock, you start to see some of these weird uh, attributes showing up. And I'm thinking about the whale with legs yes. that was in the exhibit Extreme Animals here at Fernbank and how that sort of plays into this idea of this walrus that's depicted here in the book. Now, it should be noted, even though a lot of these cartographers were, again, trying to use the best information of the time to depict an accurate vision of the world, there was still a lot of uncritical copying of sea monsters. Uh, for instance, a 1558 edition of Cornelius Anthosis Carta van Uslot, a map of northern Europe, uh, it included a fabulous flying turtle. Uh, and it, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a gamma creature in a way. It's got like this kind of beaked uh, uh, nose. It's got uh, mostly a turtle body around the rest of it, except its front legs are like eagle wings. So it's a really fabulous-looking creature. But here's the thing. It turns out it was probably the logo of the publisher. And that's the only reason it was on the map. The, the, the publisher's logo was this flying turtle. Right. And then when people copied that map, they included it as if it was uh, supposed to be there, as if it was a depiction of the natural world. It would be like if you copied a Rand McNally map mm-hmm. and you included that Rand McNally diamond logo and said it was a continent. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah, I can't help but thinking, I'm sorry, a little bit distracted by the Lego's Chimera sets that have come out. Have you seen those? Of a Chimera? Uh, the Chimera Lego sets where they've got different animals depicted. No, no, I haven't seen those. They should take a page from these maps, I'm telling you. But that's not to say that, again, that everybody was just copying monsters willy-nilly. There were some very, there were some definitely some skeptics of the time, and that's always important when you're talking about the, the Middle Ages uh, or, or Renaissance times, that not everybody was just blindly believing everything that came across their plate. Uh, one great example of this, as uh, uh, explained in uh, Van Duzer's book, you had this guy, Fra Maro. Uh, Fra Maro uh, lived in you know, 1450, thereabouts, uh, when he was uh, doing his thing, and he wrote, Because there are many cosmographers and most learned men who write that in this Africa there are human and animal monsters, I think it is necessary to give my opinion. In all these kingdoms of the, the, the Negroes, I have never found anyone who could give me information on what those men have written. Thus, not knowing anything, I cannot bear witness to anything, and I leave research in the matter to those who are curious about such things. So basically he's saying, I'm not buying this information that you're telling me about uh, what's going on in Africa in terms of the, the strange creatures and the, the weird people that live there. So I'm not going to comment on it. I'm not going to draw it, etc. And yet, it's a little bit of a weak sauce statement. Because it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know. I suppose that was bold for back then, though. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about whales, because these guys are amazing in terms of the, the sort of stories that were circulated around about them and then how it was depicted and, and the images of them. And I was thinking about this because last night I was looking at pictures of humpback whales. Yes. And um, I was looking at their blowholes. As you do. Yeah, as yeah. I do. And I couldn't help but just be really sort of um, taken back because as I looked at those pictures, it, it started to look like a giant human snout. 
stuck on on the back of a whale. And if you look at pictures close up of the blowhole, you'll see that there's like a little bridge between what looks like nostrils. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, if that were to be swimming, uh, you know, parallel to your ship, and you happen to look at that, wouldn't you sort of misunderstand that as a distortion or? Um, you know, as, as a sort of monstrosity of a human form in a way that it looked like, oh, this must be a monster because there's their giant snout. And how then would that be depicted? Yeah. How would, how would you, would you describe that to somebody and they had to draw it having not seen it and you weren't there to say, no, a little more, uh, a little, a little closer to the animal's, uh, uh, back. No, a little more like a human nose. You know, if you weren't there to actually give that kind of feedback, mm-hmm. how would they draw it? So. And if, yeah, water is, is just, spouting out of it, right? Yeah. Then then it's sort of like, well, what do you mean water spouts out of it? Then clearly there must be some sort of tube system here. Yeah. So it, it, as we've mentioned previously, the whale is a, a pretty classic sea monster. People have been seeing them for ages, even before we knew what to call it. We had the leviathan. We had the, the giant fish that swallowed Jonah. You had the island fish that we talked about where the people land on it. Uh, in many of the older whales of the uh, the 1500s especially, they were these wolf-faced beasts with long fish tails. They were uh, spouters, uh, but it took a while to work out exactly what all that spouting was about. Uh, for instance, you look at one uh, one map from 1583, you see this very wolfish, actually furry sea monster uh, known as a spouter attacking a ship uh, by vomiting water upon its deck out of its mouth. So mm-hmm. here's a great example of someone probably said, oh, well, there are these whales, and they, they spout water. They spit up water. And so then the artist's depiction of that is a whale rolling up to the ship, opening its mouth, and just vomiting water on it and like and just completely drowning the ship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's there's that. Uh, and then if you look at Oleg Magnus's uh, Carta Marna again, you see that uh, the whales here spout water from two blowholes, two Shrek-like tube-like horns that emerge from the top of the creature. And this is, uh, this is a classic attribute of, uh, of, of Magnus, Magnus's maps and his uh, depictions of sea monsters. And the crazy thing is that it matches up so well with what you were just saying about the humpback whale's real blowholes. If someone were to say, oh, well, they have these two holes on their back and they mm-hmm. spit water. And then if, if it's passing through, you know, down the telephone game of uh, illustration and manuscript and, and map making, and that comes to somebody and they're like, okay, well, what does an animal like that look like? if it has two holes on its back to spit water out of. And then it becomes this idea of these two uh, tubes sticking out of the creature's back. Right. And you can kind of see, again, like how this uh, this weirdness occurs in the depictions. In fact, it's very steampunk looking, These a lot of these. Yeah, there's a certain, uh, you, you can't help but interpret them as kind of smokestacks. So they have this kind of biomechanical vibe to them. Yeah. Now, I can't help but... Be reminded of this class that I took in college, and it was a psychology class having to do with sexuality. And one of the things we had to do is we had to pair up, and one of us had to look at a depiction of a sexual act, and the other person had to draw it as described by the person looking at it. Okay. So when one of the things I remember is there was a Victorian woman on a bike that was a bike that was made of a penis. Let's just say that penis parts. Okay. Which is kind of a difficult thing to try to. I mean, everybody knows what a bike is, but then you have to describe a, a bike that's made out of a penis. Yeah, it seemed like it'd be difficult to make them out of penises. Well, you know, yeah. this was some, out of someone's imagination, and so the other person had to try to describe what they were looking at. Well, you could go across the class, and you could see all sorts of variations of what this penis bike looked like. And it made me think, well, this is very much the same thing that's going on in these depictions of maps, minus the penis. Yeah. 
Uh, another great example of this comes from uh, Pierre Dessalier's uh, world map of 1546, which uh, has a fairly realistic depiction of whalers harpooning a whale. Uh, but it's it's a little serpentine. Its flippers are a bit like wings. And most remarkably of all, it has a gigantic mustache. It looks kind of like the uh, the luck dragons from the Neverending Story. It's a gentleman whale. Yeah. So so why does the whale have the mustache? Why is there suddenly you know because they're trying to de- clearly it's an attempted depiction of an actual cultural tradition mm-hmm. of, of of whaling of hunting the whales catching the whales harvesting the whales and a lot of these accounts included you know some some very specific uh, accounts of what then the whale parts are used for and how it's used uh, you know culturally and economically. But it has this mustache. Well, according to Van Duzer, the mustache is probably the artist's attempt to portray baleen, which uh, the whaling uh, Basques commonly referred to as barbas de balina, or the beards of the whale. So, again, you have this, uh, inf- you're trying to make the best use of the information that's provided to you, and then someone talks about the beard of the whale. Are you talking about the filtering system yeah, of the yeah. baleen whale? Yeah, the baleen, which, of course, is very internal, and mm-hmm. it's certainly not a mustache. Right. But if you describe it as the beards of the whale, and then someone down the chain has to draw the beards of the whale, this is what you get, a whale with a giant mustache. I love it. I, I was just like to imagine them sitting around... Uh, you know, at some pub, saying it's like when you get you know the crumbs in your mustache. Yeah, and it filters it out. You know, and it, it's easy for us as modern commentators to to have a lot of fun with this, but but just think about how today, like all the information in the world is instantly at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. You, if you if you even halfway know what you're doing on the internet, you can fact check something pretty quickly. But still, think of the emails you get in your inbox, just spouting complete nonsense that no one, or, or the questions that come up on Facebook, where you're, you're like, you really, why are you asking all of us when you could have just Googled that and found out immediately if you knew what sources to look for? Now, I'll take that that same mindset or even some variation of it and put it in an age without internet, where you, you only have books speaking to books over the course of decades and centuries. And this is the kind of closed system of information that you get. Exactly. Now, that's not to say we didn't have accurate depictions of whales, though. As early as 1413, we see a realistic illustration of a whale hunted by whalers on Mercedes de Velesti's nautical chart. And finally, in an interesting closure of these two trends of the fantastic and the realistic, uh, we see the Nova Francia map, uh, which features an old-fashioned sea monster with double spouts uh, and wolfish heads, you know, very much in, uh, in Magnus's style. But then you also see an incredibly realistic portrayal of whale- whalers harvesting a whale. So you see the incorporation of the older idea of the sea monster as, uh, as just a fantastic decorative note, while you also see this this very accurate depiction of whales and whaling. Mm-hmm. So you see the two coming together. And you see so the, the idea of the old sea monster becoming more and more just a relic, more and more just a decoration that eventually fades away. Well, or it becomes a tattoo, right? Because it still has yes. power as a symbol. Yeah, because you, know? you found that awesome tattoo where someone had one of uh, Oleg Magnus's uh, uh, Shrek horn sea monsters. Yeah, on, on yeah. And think, you know, even some of the more classical tattoos that show all sorts of sea creatures, um, you know, taking down a boat or just being ferocious. It kind of is this sort of um, talisman mm-hmm. against your trade if you are someone who is, you know, uh, a marine merchant or just who works in the industry. 
industry being in, of the ocean. The, the ocean industry. industry. The ocean, yeah. So in a sense, you can look at sea monsters on maps as a story of man versus ocean over mm-hmm. the course of centuries. Uh, we see the gradual journey from the ocean as a place of chaos and certain death to a thing conquered by man. Think back to those early depictions in the OT world maps, so where, again, the outer ocean is teeming with monsters. Or as in a, a map of Mundi from 1180, most of the map is outer ocean uh, as a tail-eating serpent or Ouroboros. And uh, then you also see various titan-sized sea monsters out there as well. Uh, and then we, but we gradually learn to combat the ocean, and we gradually learn to combat these uh, these monsters of the mind. Uh, in the uh, Gulf of Catalan Atlas of 1375, we see a depiction of pearl divers utilizing spells to keep sea monsters at bay. 1545, there's a map uh, where we see men aboard uh, a ship driving spears into a, a, an attacking beaked tentacle horror. And in the uh, Carta Marina, we see men blowing trumpets to ward off one of these uh, spouting whales. And then, most remarkably, 1516, on Martin uh, Waldseemuller's Carta Marina, we see King Manuel of Portugal riding a sea monster off the tip of Africa to symbolize uh, Portugal's mastery of the oceans. And from there, you know, again, sea monsters become more and more decoration, and we start adding more and more ships into our artistic representation of the ocean, and... Eventually. And more technology, and more too. more technology. Yeah. And they kind of go by the wayside because by the time that the, the camera has been invented and is starting to uh, document nature, then you, you know, have a moving away of this idea of these really monstrous creatures. Yeah. And then the maps begin to rot. Uh, we only uh, re- retained, uh, you know, a very slim uh, number of them. And they just become creatures of fantasy. And then we tend to forget that uh, at times they were wrapped up in symbolism, that they had economic purpose, mm-hmm. that they uh, that they were attempts to understand the zoology of the ocean. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to kind of lead out of this episode with a passage that Shattuck actually brings up in his article. It's from Moby Dick, and it's when uh, Ishmael climbs up the rigging to take his watch. And he's sitting on on the top sail yard, and is hanging. His leg is kind of hanging lazily over by the sail, and he's reflecting on all the other young men who have taken watch from those heights. And here it is: it says, "Lulled in such an opium-like listlessness, a vacant, unconscious reverie, is this absent-minded youth by the blending cadence of waves and thoughts that at last he loses his identity, takes the mystic ocean at his feet for the visible image of that deep blue, bottomless soul pervading mankind and nature, and every strange, half-seeing, gliding, beautiful thing that eludes him, every dimly discovered, uprising fin of some indiscernible form, seems to." him the embodiment of those elusive thoughts that only people the soul by continually flitting through it. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Man and nature as one. Awesome. Well, you know, on that note, let's call the uh, the robot over and let's see if we have any listener mail. All right, we have one for you today. This one is from Aaron. Aaron writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I was just listening to the Circus Freaks episode, and it brought me back to my college days. My nursing school was part of a university with a music theater school. It's a great combination. We bring those two <laughs> energies together. Uh, one day, those worlds collided. A visiting pyrotechnic stage professional came to a small gathering my friends were having. We learned to swallow fire. The trick was using kerosene, like you mentioned, in the fire blowing. It's not toxic, and it burns just warmer than the human mouth. I won't give the particulars, but it was an amazing trick uh, I haven't done since. My husband shakes his head in shame when I tell people I can do this, <laughs> and my father-in-law wants me to do this at his Viking funeral. We're thinking cremated. <laughs> 
suspended ashes in a small wooden boat in a small pond, casting the whole thing into a ball of fury with flaming arrows. Thank you so much for your mind-blowing podcast. I'm, I am embarking on a new career. I listen to your podcast while baking tasty muffins for a farmer's market here in town with the hopes of expanding to a small cafe. Your podcast, as well as your siblings on the Stuff Network, uh, gives me hours of entertainment while baking and boxing my goods. I've also started having a quiz for my Facebook followers using the knowledge I've gained. Uh, again, thanks sincerely, uh, Aaron, the Main Street Muffin Factory. All right. Well, that was very entertaining. A Viking funeral. Yeah. I mean, that's a way to go out. That's a good way to go out on an episode about sea monsters, too. Indeed. Yeah. So, hey, would you like to learn more? Would you like to see more? Again, uh, head by StuffToBlowYourMind.com. After you listen to this while you're listening, whichever, find the gallery that we've put together with pictures of some of these monsters we've talking about. I'll definitely be including a lot of stuff from Olga Magnus's fantastic map, and you can look at those all you want and pull up the big screen version of the map as well if you want to just really pour over it. Uh, and you can also let us know what you think about all this. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. On Twitter, we are below the mind. And uh, we'd love to hear from, from you about your thoughts on sea monsters. If you've, uh, if you've looked at them a lot, what are some of your favorites? Uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite real-life monsters in the ocean? Do all you have a sea monster tattoo? Yes. If you have a sea monster tattoo, we would love to see it if it is appropriate for us to see it. <laughs> um, you can also check us out on Stuff to Blow Your Mind on YouTube, where we uh, look at the camera and, and commit acts of word salad. Yeah, Mind Stuff Show. Mind Stuff Show. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 